Hello everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee and or occasionally wine and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and will almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or drive the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and occasional readings. There will be conflicting creative advice driven by very different points of view. Your hosts today are Chaz Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. Or let me put that the other way around. Your hosts today are Jeannie Warner and me, Chaz Brenchley. This is episode 24. And we are coming live from World Fantasy Con. And we have our very special guest today, Geraldine Lance from Subterranean Press. Woo-hoo! And before we say a word to Geraldine, I want to tell you a story. Um, so, long, long ago, um, Bill Schaefer, this is back when Bill spelled his name with only one L, so it really was a long time ago. <laughs> um, Bill Schaefer was a librarian, and he had a very, very small press, and he asked me to write a story for him, so I did, um, and then he asked if I had something that he could publish as a chapbook, and I had this sort of... What's a chapbook? A chapbook. Um, it's, Is it it's a C-H-A-T or C-H-A-P? I'm sorry, it's my accent. But no, it's, 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 it's a pamphlet, basically. Um, but yeah, it's it's a way to publish a a thing that is slightly longer than a short story and probably shorter than a novella, um, as an individual item. Um, and and I had this I had this little story, so I sent it to him, and he published it, and that was my first connection with Subterranean Press. Uh, but Bill became a friend, and he used to phone me up on Sunday mornings, and my cat would sit on my shoulder and purr all the way to America, and it was adorable. <laughs> um, and one, one time we were on the phone and he said he'd just lost his job at the library. And um, he was, he thought probably with a little more effort and push, he could make a living out of subterranean press. And I thought, Bill, Bill, don't give up the day job. Never give up the day <laughs> job. Nobody makes a living from, from, from being a small press. Um, and you know, oh, here come, we are. Wait a second, Chaz. Hello. Nobody makes a living being a writer either. And yet here you are. That is true. That is true. But as you see, I'm very thin. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, here we are 25, 30 years later, whatever it is. Um, and, and Subterranean Press is this massive, marvelous thing that I adore. And and it's still Bill, you know. It's just adorable. Anyway, that's my story and probably my sole contribution because I'm going back to the coffee now. <laughs> well, Geraldine, how did you get involved with Subterranean Press? Well, I first got involved because I had been going to science fiction fantasy conventions. Uh, I am not an author. I am not a writer. I am just a fan. And I became friends with Yanni Kuznia, who is the managing editor at Subterranean. So after becoming friends with her, I had asked, hey, if there's ever any openings at Subpress, I would love to work there. I had been working retail, um, and it was the hellish landscape that retail is. I've heard that. Yes, (laughs) it was not great. So they actually had an opening in their shipping department. So the way Subterranean works is we're publishing collector's editions that are designed to be very pristine and in perfect condition with no torn dust jackets. And so we handpack and ship 
each customer's books individually. So I started working in the shipping department, and I loved working for the company. Did you have to wear a tuxedo, gloves? Is this No, uh, <laughs> no. It turns out when I uh, wore a button-up shirt to the interview, they were like, you know, that's, that's a little bit much. <laughs> <laughs> Like, sorry, it's, it's an interview. <laughs> and it turned out I actually had a good eye for copy editing. So even though I was working in the shipping department, uh, there were things I noticed in our books and... Mistakes. Mistakes. <laughs> before they were ever published, of oh, course. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Yanni and Bill encouraged that uh, skill. And eventually I moved over into, after about two years being the production assistant. So that was when I became Yanni's, you know, right-hand person and everything took off from there. Mhm. And now you're officially production manager. Yes. Yes. Okay, so well, oh yeah. It's not just everybody out there who doesn't know what a production manager actually does. It's also me in here. Um, despite, you know, I've been in publishing for 40 years, and I, I really know nothing of what happens behind the front desk. Um, so so what, is your, what is your actual job? My job, uh, the very basic part of it, is to take a book from manuscript to getting it in the warehouse. So I once Bill and Yanni have signed a contract and acquired the files, I'm the person who takes those uh, words and... I take the vision that Bill and Yanni and the author have for the book and make sure it comes to fruition. So if they, I, I will take these files and prep them, or my assistant Kyle now, actually, he will prep them. Ooh, an assistant. I know. I feel, <laughs> I feel so fancy. <laughs> my assistant. Uh, let me tell you. EA's the best things ever. Yes. So we we prep this file mm-hmm. and we have, you know, designers that we work with. Uh, they're not in-house. You know, we're not that big. And we will have a designer uh, give us a few examples, make sure it fits the look we're going for. Once we get that back and approved, we will have the text flowed into the book. So we have the entire text. And then we have, I send it out to be edited by somebody. Uh, If we're doing a special collector's edition of something that already exists, uh, the person doing the the editing will read both versions to make sure ours match exactly. And also, you know, catch any misspellings that made it in the original. And I make sure the art gets placed. I do a lot of interacting with the printing companies as well. Uh, something not a lot of people realize is, so we're you know a press, a publishing company. We don't actually print the books in-house. We send that off to another company. So the machines and the equipment to print a book are massive mm-hmm. and million-dollar machines mm-hmm. and require <laughs> people who are specifically trained yep. to work on those. Matt, Madeline runs the, uh, Madeline Robbins, as yes. you know, runs the American Bookbinders Museum. So if anybody oh. ever wants to see the old way of books going together <laughs> and say it's only bigger, better, brighter, and slightly more polished, it's, <laughs> it's impressive. Yes, it, yeah, I love going to, you know, we're lucky enough where uh, a few of the printing presses are within an hour or two of drive. Right. So I'm able to actually drive there and do inspections before the book is bound 
if needed. Yeah. So what state do you operate out of? We are in Detroit, Michigan. Ah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I look, we were just talking, as I said, we've talked uh, with an agent that says agents tend to be in New York. So I'm looking at where the publishing tends to hang out. And I knew there was a big thing in Chicago for a while. Did Detroit grow out of Chicago? Did Chicago grow out of Detroit? I would say Chicago grew out of Detroit because Southeast Michigan has is where a lot of uh, printing presses uh, started. Hmm. So there was a few people back like 1890 who they started a printing press and different people branched off from the, that original duo. So, and they started one in Chicago. And so a yeah. lot of, uh, the Midwest actually has a, a lot of the uh, printing presses. Hmm. I mean, less yeah. and less every year. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, um, so you, it sounds like you kind of manage a lot of the end-to-end pieces. So you have the authors like him and and the subterranean press. Do they deal directly with agents? Do they deal directly with authors? Or where, where do... Both of those. Both of those? Yes. You know, each, each relationship is different. There are uh, certain authors who like to be intimately involved with how their book looks and... That's great, you know, because, you know, we want them to be happy. This is, you know, this is how we get their vision of how they yeah. saw the words. So, so do you commission the artwork yourself? Yes. Right. So we, you know, we take uh, input from the authors. Sure. Um, John Scalzi, uh, he loves Natalie Metzger's work. Mm-hmm. She did the interior and cover art for Miniatures which was a uh, collection of short stories that we did, which several of those are uh, on the Netflix series, Love oh. and Death and Robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. those came from like our short story collection. So John and Natalie uh, did a lot of communication for that. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, thank you. These are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you, do you guys go solicit art? I mean, I'm figured out where the author's side of it, but for the artists out there, and I know that like Ellen Million does both, for mm-hmm. instance. How does a new artist say, I can't write, but I desperately want to be part of the book world? Can I send my art to a publishing company and say, here's my portfolio? Or how do they, how do they get to your attention? So we, we actively search out artists. And you know, we will go to bookstores. We keep an eye on who Spectrum you know, is noticing in, you know, the, the Spectrum fantasy oh, art. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was going to say, who is Spectrum fantasy yes. art? That's, yes, they do. Always yeah, they pretend do your words. listeners know nothing here. Aka <laughs> <Okay>, um, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we, we watch a lot of uh, fantasy artists just looking for who's going to fit the project just right. Uh, and I personally, like, I will go on to... Uh, ArtStation and Behance and okay, Instagram. Uh, ArtStation and Behance are kind of like a website that artists can have a portfolio Watch on, them. and okay. it's all just kept right there. Yeah. So neat. Uh, and I can I'm able to search by fantasy art mm-hmm. or sure. uh, concept design. Mm-hmm. I look at a lot of 
video game artists because they're usually able to do the epic sprawling look <laughs> that some of our books require. <laughs> like if you've seen the Malazan, uh, the yes. sub presses Malazan books, yes. like it is epic. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so yeah, usually we reach out to artists. Uh, you know, if something shows up at our warehouse, we'll take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we've ever found the right artist from that however okay so cool well it lets them know i'll grab the sites from you listeners so you can uh, look up online where to where to go and start creating your portfolio here and yeah i um i love it when uh on twitter people will do the roundups of different like artists like promoting themselves and watching like an artist whose work i respect who they're promoting Oh. Usually, yeah. they 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 manage to uh, promote somebody who's who's equally skilled. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of word of mouth. Yeah, sure. I always think it's funny, and in, in this industry in particular, the the whole writing and art and the creative side of it, it is different in comp- competition than many of the other industries seem to be because it's not me instead of you it's mm. me and you if i yeah. like you because there's there's none of the wow i hate that stupid john scalzi but oh god what he writes is so beautiful um but no it's it's not a zero-sum game yeah you know my selling a book does not prevent you from selling a book exactly and does that work in publishing too? Do you are there rival publishers at all, or is that a, a myth? Or well, there's definitely uh, like at least in the collector's edition, mm. you know, what? there are, are certain uh, authors that are very sellable. So there's the competition for you know everybody wants to be able to be the next person to publish Stephen King's limited edition. Sure. So yeah. there's there's that competition <laughs> well, where yeah. we all want to be that company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know when a new author hits, uh, there's a bit of a scramble for you know there'll be multiple mm-hmm. bids of mm-hmm. presses like ours trying to to do their work, and yeah. it's great for the author mm-hmm. because they're able to. To choose who mm. they want to work with, who's going to fit their ver- vision. Mm. Yeah, what Grim Oak is doing is different than Sub Press, and we're different than Cemetery Dance. Yeah. So there's a third one. Then I say, when you have it, you promote it. Now I've tragically been involved in marketing for a bit too here and there. Do you have a whole marketing division, or is that something that you handle in the production area, or how do you get the word out? How do you wave the flag? Well. For us, it's been, we have a very established customer base that has grown through Bill. And he sends out a newsletter twice a week that has been uh, probably our, our, the best source of finding out about us. And other than that, really, because we are selling to devoted fans... Mm-hmm. The devoted fans tend to be the ones who follow an author's mm-hmm. online presence. So once an author says this is happening, their fans hopefully come in droves. Yes. You know, Gail Carriger, you know, uh-huh. she has... Oh, she's so organized. <laughs> yes, oh, I love her. Uh, but her fans, they are very devoted. Yeah. And even if they personally might not want a, her, the book that's coming out... Mm-hmm they will spread the word yeah. to everybody they know 
who might be interested. And that's our best marketing is the rabid fans. Basically, you're selling into a community that really wants what you're selling. Yes. And that makes a difference. They're, you know, finding, you know, that tribe of people who, you know, they're willing to spend money on a Mm. book they've already read. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Do you ever have some of the bigger publishers trying to come in and shark people, or is it even sharking, or is it just uh, this series, that series? Like if you have Gail Carriger for this, and then uh, this is, I have no idea in the world who's publishing whom right now, so this is my ignorance, but I'm saying, what if somebody like a tour came in and tried to steal her? We're in a weird position where we're not bringing in new authors. So we're not going to be discovering somebody that a larger publisher is going to be able to offer, you know, the dump truck of money. So, and the most of the larger publishers don't have the means to do what we do. uh, And it's not financially worth it. We're publishing limited editions. We're, there's a finite amount of money that we're going to be making off yeah. of this. Right, right. Part of our business model is that we're selling, for example, a thousand copies of a book. They're all signed. They're all really expensive to make. And we'll never go back for a second yeah. printing. Yeah. So Absolutely. these could actually be rare and valuable oh, yeah. and worth something yes. as it goes oh, yeah, by. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the, the two markets for these books are the fans and the collectors. And and a lot of them just will get shelved, possibly even still in their sealed bags. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, yes. and never read, but preserved. When we do an original, we will do multiple versions, traditionally, yeah. um, where we might do what's called a trade edition, which is hardcover and is not signed. And we'll produce maybe 2,000 of those. And then we'll do a limited edition where those, they're limited because we will only sell or produce so many. And when you open the book, there'll be what's called a signature page where the author or authors or artists have signed it. And there's a little wording that states, you know, this is um, limited to 1,000 copies numbered copies and 26 lettered copies Mm -hmm. this is copy and then in the warehouse we handwrite what copy you're receiving oh so like the art prints kind of like the one of 250 exactly i am 75 of 250 do you do you have any customers who always want the same number yes i thought you might oh my gosh really (laughs) (laughs) of course that's a thing what was i thinking (laughs) i mean everybody wants number one sure that we uh do you sell it (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry? Do you sell number one? Yes. Okay, yes, you, we do. You don't even keep it for your own shelves? Nope. What? Number one uh, is uh, you're not allowed to hold number one unless it's you re- unless it's in a series and you got number one for the for first the, book. Okay, then, yeah. Uh, but we try to, whoever, it's a first come, first serve, yeah. so the first person who places that order and if they're not somebody who requests a different number they will receive number one cool yes that's very nice one of the things we do is we keep track of who gets what number Mm -hmm. and Uh then we try to match your number whenever possible (laughs) so when we're doing a series like we did the limiteds of uh the broken earth trilogy by nk jemison uh 
if you whatever number you got for the fifth season, we tried to make sure you got that number for the second and third. That's so, extremely um, cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, I, that's customer care. And that's, yeah. and that's what it is. Like yeah. it's people desire match, a matching set is valuable. Mm-hmm. And it's also rewarding the mm-hmm. people who were in at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. reward your faithful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's not everybody wants a matching number. There are people who do request a random one. Okay. Um, and I understand the pain of people coming in later in a series not being able to get it. I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. I, I, I've occasionally, for very prolific authors, said, oh, this reading, I pick it up in an airport, and I used to get books by volume because I need it to last a certain amount of time for a 16-hour flight, and I read too fast. So I found a book eight, and I didn't realize it was book eight because <laughs> I didn't read at the end first. Oh, see all these other books, and the, oh shoot! So that would have been terrible for me if I'd been trying to do that. Yeah. But on the other hand, to a certain extent, I kept thinking of all the people that are completionist, and by that I mean you got to catch them all, Pokemon mm-hmm. players, or I must do everything all the way through the end. That's kind of a really neat feature. And I don't even know if they know that it's possible. So there you go out there, extreme collectors. You can have a whole new... Uh... <laughs> that is something that we try our best to do is keep a series looking the same. And it's something where I care a lot about that because I am definitely a Pokemon, catch mm-hmm. them all, organize everything perfectly. So, you know, and Bill, he's got a lot going on. So he doesn't care about that as much as, say, I do. So one of the things that I instituted when I moved into production is we track everything and make it match as much as we can. <laughs> and yeah. Um, so when you do a trade edition, that's, it's not signed, it's not limited. Would, would you reprint a trade edition if, if it did well? We have in the past, oh. and it really depends yeah. on... Uh, the contract and if we think it's going to still make more money. Um, We have been reprinting some of the uh, McCammon books, Uh originals that we did, because we found that, you know, five, six years later, the trade edition that we originally published is going for Two hundred dollars on the wow. aftermarket. Wow! Yes. So we'll, <laughs> yeah. so, we want to share with that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, we want people to be able to read the books. Yeah. So we we have reprinted a few of those. Mm-hmm. Do you, so. So I mean, you're you're very much a niche market. Yes. And and the big publishers are very much the other thing. Do you actually have a relationship where? Um, you know, a big publisher would come to you and say, "We've got this new guy, and he's going to be big." Like that. I don't think we've ever had something like right. that happen. Yeah. We you know, we have relationships with the publishers. You know, most of the big publishers have somebody working there who's in charge of subsidiary rights yeah. that we interact with. Yeah, sure. Um usually it would be our relationship with agents mm-hmm. who right. would reach out and say, Hey, yeah. I think this right. would be a good fit for you. Right. And and I mean, correlative to that, um, do you? I mean, you do sometimes. A lot of your work is reprints, but yes. you do some originals. I know. Um, do you ever have big publishers coming to you saying, "Okay, you did this. We really like to do a trade edition of that." I'm sure we have. <laughs> 
I can't think of one off the top okay. of my head. But, but uh, it's, it's not common. It's not common. Part of that is because a lot of the originals we do are novellas. Yeah. And they're hard to sell. Those are hard to sell. Yeah. Uh, something that has happened is, well, for example, we've been publishing hardcover editions of Lois McMaster Visual's uh, novellas. And in particular, her Penrick and Desdemona series. She is going to be releasing an omnibus with Bane of the first three and then the second three collected. And those are coming out in paperback, I believe. So that will happen. But that is driven by Lois and her agent because we don't have those mass market rights. So we wouldn't be selling those rights. No, no, no. Now, as a question, I, in, in the routes to market, do people buy them directly from you on your website, or do you license through Amazon or other places, or how do you, how do you push out? Most of our books are sold directly to our customers from our website. So uh, I would say probably, depending on the title, we're 60% direct to customer. Okay. And we do sell through distributors such as Amazon and Baker and Taylor and Ingram. So if a library wants one of our books, they would go through their normal channels of seeing it on Ingram. Mm -hmm. And our trade editions, we will often put up for sale on Amazon. Now, the Amazon uh, gets filled last when we are publishing something. So to guarantee a copy, it is best to buy direct mm-hmm. from us. Sure. So even though Amazon will discount it, you're not yeah. guaranteed a copy, and Amazon doesn't take the care in shipping that we mm-hmm. do. So if you want a pristine copy, it's a gamble. That makes sense. Yeah. So. Many, many things have been said already about Amazon's warehousing. <laughs> yes. so. um, and following on from that, do you have a relationship? Do you sell to... The independent science fiction bookstores like Borderlands. We do. We do. Yes, we have a relationship with Borderlands. With uh, we work a lot of our limiteds with Camelot Books. So if you're looking for something, Camelot is a great resource. Where's Camelot? They are in Florida. Okay. I always thought they were somewhere in England. So <laughs> <laughs> it's allegedly just, it's cons- corn. <laughs> the snow may never fall till after sundown. <laughs> Uh, Mysterious Galaxy mm-hmm. will carry our books. And a lot of times, if an author has a bookstore that is dear to their heart, they will order lots of our books. So I think there's a bookstore called Hugo's that Lois has, a, right. Master Visual yeah. has a relationship with. Right. So they'll order a bunch of our trades. Uh-huh. She'll go there, she'll sign Sign-up. a bunch for yeah, people. Sure. Nice. So, yeah, so if you know that an author has a relationship with a bookstore, uh, that's another great resource for finding our books. Yeah. Do you do a lot of your, first of all, in, are you international? Are you mostly North America at this point? or We will ship anywhere in the world. That's for all you Australians that yes. actually listen to this podcast. So, And <laughs> Australians, I am sorry that it costs so much. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know. Yes. <laughs> we, uh, we have a lot of friends that say, uh, can I ship something to you and would you send it to Australia and I'll pay you whatever it is. So... That's a hooray, Australian market you can buy directly from Subterranean Press. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, we will ship anywhere. 
Um, sadly, our costs for shipping, we're in a weird place where we're not big enough to get the type of contracts that allow for discounted shipping that a lot of larger companies can do. So the price you're paying to ship something is what it would cost. Well, going down to the post office exactly. and shipping something. Exactly. and that's, But that means some of them won't even do that. So that's... I have had many friends that have asked us to ship, so I think it's great that you say, no, you're just, whatever it costs you, you have to pass it along, but you're at least willing to do it. Yes. And it helps that you manufacture them here in the United States, because that's a new rule in shipping, too, that they ask me of, where was this thing created? Yes. So the fact that you are creating an object and making the book here in America makes it easier to ship with our very strange current changes of rules. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And so I, I guess what what advice would you have for somebody else who said, maybe I can't write, but I want to be involved in, in publishing in some way? What, what advice would you give them? My advice would be to work on skills that can get you into the different types of roles. So for what I'm doing, it's project management. So even I don't have an English degree. I actually don't have any college degree. Uh, so thank you, Subterranean, for looking at what I can do and not a, you know, a degree. Um, I'm an art school dropout, and but somebody who has like a you know project management certificate, if that's a skill you have, that's a great thing to encourage. Oh, I entirely agree. I think anybody in the world for every thing in the world should do a little bit of project management. Yes. <laughs> as, as I had a project management teacher say, look, making a Thanksgiving dinner is project management. Yes. Ooh, I can do that. You can do that. <laughs> I can call somebody to deliver it. <laughs> so, so looking and seeing, you know, it's not just being an editor. It's the people in the whole supply chain. You know, that makes sense. So relationship management on many different levels. Yes. Yes. Um, see, you know, the big publishers, their websites will have different careers that they are looking for, mm -hmm. and very few of them are editors. I, I can see that. <laughs> All right, we're going to put links to uh, these fabulously interesting places. I'll work with uh, Geraldine to get all of the list of stuff that we talked about during the podcast. Um, and it will all be on our website under this episode, which is on www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We live for email. And if you have a question specific for Geraldine, we will pass that on and uh, get a response for you there. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Ingberg. You can hear more from Michael Ingberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor, as always, is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag, including our new Live at Mally's t-shirt, recorded on this very device here, the world's prettiest microphone. 